we haven't got your brown, plate of brownies yet, but um, we certainly want to take advantage of our time with Trevor. So um, I'll, I'll invite you to, um, to return, and again, we thank Shaw TV and also um, uh, radio station CKXUFM uh, 88.3 that uh, carries us at the university. Um, so I'll... I'm sorry, I, I got into it and then realized, I, I, I want to tell you about next week. No. By the way, uh, Trevor mentioned the issue of jobs in the future uh, and automation. That is an issue and Professor Richard uh, Mueller, Rick Mueller, will be here in I forget how many weeks to deal with exactly that issue of jobs in the future, so keep an eye out for it. But next week, uh, the, the issue is the local airport. What makes an airport fly is air service to and from Lethbridge suffering from small airport mentality. So we'll unpack uh, where our airport is going and should go. Um, I think that's it. Uh, the microphone is over there, and uh, even after such a dull presentation and a dull subject, maybe you can come up with a question or two. And uh, please give your name and be brief. Thank you, Terry. And uh, just before we uh, recommence here, I just want to uh, thank again uh, SACPAW and everybody involved, uh, Terry, Knud, everybody for uh, inviting me back here. Uh, again, it's been uh, really enjoyable. So quite happy to take uh, some questions. I see uh, just over here. Uh, Maria Fitzpatrick. I don't think we're on. Maria Fitzpatrick. Uh, first of all, thank you very much, Trevor. That was a wonderful presentation, and I think I'd like to sit in on one of your classes. Um, so uh, here in Alberta, uh, we're certainly not insulated or isolated uh, from what is going on south of the border. Uh, so I'm interested uh, to hear your perspective on the impact on Alberta uh, specifically, and your thoughts on uh, what we should be uh, doing to lessen the damage? Hmm. Really good question. Uh, thanks, Maria. Uh, you know, there's there's going to be, as as Donald Trump would say, there's there's winners and there's losers in his world. Uh, there are actually out of uh, some things that he's going to be doing, presumably that create opportunities, positive ones for Alberta, I guess. Uh, one is obviously he's going to uh, proceed with the uh, Keystone XL. Now, that is going to create a certain number of jobs, certain amount of excitement. I want to hedge what I say here by saying there's some long-term problems there, obviously, too. One in terms of the environment. And it may actually be a, uh, uh over-expectation to think that uh, opening up pipelines is going to create that much more wealth for Alberta, uh, partly because the world is uh, now aflush with uh, oil anyway, and the United States particularly is. So uh, we shouldn't think that that's going to be a huge boom, but there, there could be some benefits there. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that Alberta's future really lies in uh, diversifying, and that means also diversifying away from dependency on the United States. Now, this is a long-term thing that every Canadian Prime Minister going back decades and decades has wanted to do. But I think, if anything, uh, the protectionist policies of uh, Donald Trump uh, 
suggests that we need to really think seriously. So uh, openings for the, uh, to the Pacific, openings to Europe, this is where Alberta should be going. In the, uh, beyond the economy, I think what Alberta needs to do is continue to really work well to integrate newcomers into the community and uh, to also not be afraid of uh, or shy away from confronting racist, uh, homophobic, sexist, and other uh, comments that are made uh, by politicians, media, etc. I think we have to be very wary of uh, the direction that can go there. So I think those are some of the things that Alberta can look to. Thank you. Hi, Trevor. Welcome here. We on the Sockboy Board, we're so excited that you would be able to come and talk to us at this time. Who are you? I'm Bev Mindel-Atherstone. <laughs> With your definition of populism, I'm wondering if um, Trump might be hoisted on his own petard uh, with populism rising against him and he being seen <coughs> as the, the elite uh, and the people saying he's, um, he's actually become like the elite, like the ones they wanted to throw out and the things that he is doing um, uh, are bad for the nation, in particular when we see the rise of marches in big cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's always a possibility it can be uh, turned against someone. Remember, as I said, uh, the idea of uh, charisma is kind of in the eye of the beholder, and it can suddenly disappear as well. And people say, well, I don't see why I ever saw that person. Same thing with populism. Uh, the United States is in a particularly volatile period right now, uh, clearly, and they are looking for answers. Uh, it always struck as kind of bizarre that somebody who purports to be very, very wealthy, we don't know how wealthy, uh, is somehow not a member of the elite. Uh, and so that's kind of strange in its own right. Uh, the other thing is, of course, that uh, you know, having run against Washington and the Hillary Clinton faction of the Democratic Party and Wall Street, that they then appoint people from Goldman Sachs, who if there was any group that was probably more responsible for the Great Recession, <laughs> there just it isn't than Goldman Sachs. So all of a sudden, he seems to have cozied up to those interests again. Uh, the, the marches in the street are, are good. They're a nice start. People should voice their opinions. Uh, I am wary in my... Uh, my hesitancy, I would suggest this to people. People get way too excited by marches in the street. Before 9-11, there were marches in Genoa and Seattle and all over the place against uh, globalization. Came to nothing. Great Recession, the Occupy movement came to nothing. The, against the Iraq War, millions of people around the world marching the street came to nothing. Uh, in some ways, marches in the street are a great way in liberal democracy to get people to use up their energy and feel really good about themselves and do nothing. So uh, the, the lesson here is, and this is actually a lesson for young people who sometimes think that marching the street is really cool, but they don't want to join a political party. Ultimately, you have to filter it through a political vehicle, otherwise it adds to nothing. So all those marches, all those people who are really excited, uh, don't forget that you actually have to mobilize in a genuine way to make it practically have an effect in the world. And do you, th and do you think that um, Donald Trump will be impeached? 
Uh, I know some, I understand somebody has actually laid bets at about 50-50 that he will be. Uh, part of it actually again comes down to, as I said before, uh, do, is there the political will to go ahead with it? If the Republican Party started to think that they have now tied themselves to someone who is not only going to destroy the party, but in their own sense, destroy their own political careers, then there's more of a chance for impeachment to go forward. That is, everybody in Congress, uh, every House of member of the House of Representatives is going to be looking at the polls and saying, what do the American people think about this guy? And uh, that would create the momentum to actually go ahead with it. Uh, and practically, of course, he has to have done some things that legally fit the bill of, uh, for being impeached. But uh, it's reasonably predictable he probably is going to overstep in some ways, and uh, there will be grounds for that. Uh, so I haven't answered it, but, you know. <laughs> Trevor Page. I'm really concerned about the situation, as are many of my former colleagues at the UN. We face very dangerous times globally. Um, I, I agree with your analysis and your views on the dangers that we face. And given this scenario, I wonder if you'd care to speculate on what Justin Trudeau might do, both domestic, or rather both in terms of North America and in terms of globally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you, Trevor. Uh, the, uh, yeah, we are in really dangerous times uh, uh, around the world and also here in Canada. Um, I think that a lot of political leaders, uh, a lot of people outside of the political realm as well, are trying to figure out actually how to, to uh, deal with Donald Trump. He is so erratic, so unpredictable, so unconventional that people aren't quite sure. So I, you know, with every day there seems to be another outrage and there's, I think a lot of people are trying to get their feet underneath them to figure out how to proceed. So I think that the Trudeau government in Ottawa, my fear, and thus far I, I think it's proving to be true, is that they are going to think that we can go back to the way things were, that somehow this is politics as usual, and I don't think it is. Um, the one thing Canada has always been successful in doing is when it works with other people. I think Canada right now should be forging stronger alliances with Mexico. I think Canada should be forging stronger alliances with, uh, economically certainly with the Pacific Rim, but also with uh, politically with uh, uh, governments in Europe. And on Facebook the other day, actually, to signal the fact that people, governments are not happy with what is going on, I suggested, actually, I think Canada, again, not alone, Canada in coalition with other governments, should in fact withdraw their ambassador from the United States until such time as the current policy on immigration is ended. Um, the, the, the withdrawal of an ambassador, which we normally think of doing to places like Botswana land or Iraq or something like that, uh, is, about, is a pretty strong symbolic statement of displeasure on the part of governments. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice symbolic first gesture. And in this case, symbolism is not unimportant. 
I think it would give voice and support to uh, groups in the United States who also oppose Donald Trump, and it would send a signal that the world really doesn't think that this is an appropriate thing for governments to be doing. Um, Trevor, but I do think they need to be take a much stronger stand than they have, and uh, I'm afraid they're they're not. Um, uh, Trevor, I know you've got a big crowd, but I was not asking. I know what you think. I, I was asking what you think Trudeau will do. Ah. Well, I've already said I don't think he's going to do very much. I think he's going to sit and wait and try to find out what uh, what uh, you know. What the Trump administration, they're going to hope they go back to normal times. So I think they're going to sit and wait and be really cautious and cozy. And I think that's actually a very dangerous thing to do right now. Okay. Uh, Peter Beale, uh, I, I just want to see, like, basically, with the world awash with surplus people, and one of the reports with this whole thing is that automation is taking more jobs than, <coughs> than uh, imports. Uh, I mean, that was really what fueled the rage that elected Trump, was this idea of be sitting at home useless. Uh, is there a possibility, like, I don't know what the political will is here, that's what really the opinion mm -hmm. I want from you, for what they call a, a minimum income, so that all those people can just still, you know, be consumers. That's that's really all industry wants is consumers. Mm -hmm. And who's going to pay the taxes to, you know, to support that sort of option? Mm. That's a that's a really good question. And uh, let me just preface it by saying I actually uh, talked about the jobs crisis at Parkland's uh, conference in the fall. So this is something I've been actually following for a while. I'll also say that uh, just a plug here for SACPA, uh, Richard Mueller, who again is going to be presenting on that in the next little while here. Uh, Rick and I actually presented together at that Parkland conference. So we've had conversations around this. Um, Guaranteed annual income is kind of a uh, interesting idea. I will little story here for those of you who don't know. Actually, I sort of cut my teeth on uh, in social research as a young man working on the experiment in Manitoba many years ago. Uh, I was uh, integrally involved. I actually headed up the uh, the main site for the uh, the research part of that. So I'm, I'm familiar with it. My argument actually is a little bit different, though. Uh, there are no surplus people. What there are is a uh, inability of governments and uh, corporations and universities to actually think about how to use the best skills that people have. So my argument is a three-pronged one. Uh, if automation is going to replace people in certain kinds of jobs, many jobs of which are kind of onerous and horrible things to do anyway, what we've always wanted to do is free up people so they can use their skills in other ways. But our system doesn't allow for that. So one, we need to redistribute the work. Uh, we actually need to think about lowering the number of hours per week. Uh, you know, why over the last number of decades have we gone back to increasing hours of work? We need to lower that. We need to redistribute the incomes, the, the surplus, the wealth that is produced from that so it doesn't go to the 1% of the 1%. Uh, that actually fuels demand in the system. Therefore, you actually get to buy all those wonderful goodies that those machines will be making. Uh, and the third thing that is going to be a kind of existential thing that we need to deal with is we need to reconceptualize what work actually is. And that means we need to put allow people uh, to work in things that we 
quite often don't think of as real work. Uh, I think that what we should be doing, in fact, is we should have more university teachers. We should not have classes of 200 or 250 or 80 to 1 ratios. Uh, why not have classes that are at least down to 40 for every class? High <laughs> Over the years, high school teachers, we've somehow got to the idea that a ratio of 35 to 1 is a great ratio, and we don't want to hire more than that. We have an incredible number of people who are very well educated. Let's get the high school ratio down to something like 15 to 1. Why do we think that we should have so few nurses on, uh, on wards that we can handle people? Let's hire more nurses. Let's, let's pay people who work in daycare who deal with the most precious resource we have, which is children. Let's have more people who are skilled, who are trained, who are working with children. The, the future of work is going to be in services, well-trained people who work with human beings. The jobs otherwise in, in a lot of areas are going to disappear. That's the kind of thinking we need to do. And mainstream parties, and this is where the populists are right, the mainstream parties have not thought seriously about it because all they've thought about is profits for the few. And now we need to redistribute work, income, and the kinds of work that we want done in future. My name is Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming today, Trevor. You, uh, you drew a Trump-sized crowd. <laughs> even, even it is uh, huge, as I said. Even the alternative news, uh, alternative facts crowd. <laughs> uh, before I ask my question, I'd like to thank uh, Country Kitchen Catering for putting up with us here. They, they can accommodate anywhere from 60 to 120, which is amazing. Uh, my question, Trevor, relates to uh, to the law, law profession. They are obviously going to be very well employed for the next uh, four years. <laughs> and uh, if you could comment on his firing of the uh, at, uh, the yeah, Sally Jen Jenkins, and uh, and also about the uh, Supreme Court uh, nominee that he's put forward, which is an alter-right, as I understand it. Mm. And that has uh, long-time ramifications, of course, on the way things are going in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think uh, lawyers are likely to be in a, uh, do really well. It's a great profession to go into. When I talked about redistributing and hiring more people, no worry about the law profession. They're going to do really well into the future. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm not a total expert on what are kind of the, the rules, regulations, and protections about people who work in various uh, areas of the civil service. It is true that uh, probably that the president can fire and not fire whoever he, she wants. You remember Ronald Reagan overnight got rid of all the air traffic controllers, which uh, created chaos again, think of chaos for a long time afterwards. Uh, what you actually need though then, and, and this, this is in terms of governance generally, is that where there's a legitimate reason for people to stand uh, outside of a direct order, you need those kind of protections. 
in place. And I'm, I'm just not sure what is actually a, uh, in place there and whether or not that person was able to actually do that. Um, the other question was, remind me again. Supreme Court. Supreme Court, right, right, right. Uh, the, it sounds like, well, uh, Donald Trump has told uh, the Republicans if they cannot get a hearing to, as he says, go nuclear in terms of doing it. My understanding is that that option has always been there. That's why it's in the rules, but the Republicans in the past, and Democrats for that matter too, have not used it because of setting a precedent. So the interesting thing here is, and as I said, the Republicans are totally beholden to uh, Donald Trump at this point. You wonder when they actually will find their own voice, but uh, they, uh, they, even some of them may be fearful that if they set this precedent, what does it mean down the road when Donald Trump's gone and they are in a similar kind of situation, so I don't know. Yeah. Next question. Okay, uh, my name is Stan Knowlton. Good afternoon, Trevor. With all this talk, uh, with all this uh, talk of doom and gloom, you are making me very homesick. <laughs> <laughs> when you come from a community that's uh, got in excess of eighty percent unemployment, um, you know, forty percent unemployment looks really rosy, mm -hmm. and when you brought up twenty yeah. percent, boy, I yeah. wish I could be there. Uh, native communities have all often referred to this um, scenario that you're sort of describing as the buffalo jump. Uh, some people describe it as the end of the trail. And I was just wondering, uh, you know, you sort of uh, touched on um, uh, looking at different ways of st viewing st what Stan, they are. St Stan, you, ha you need to be brief. We got yeah. a number of questioners. Okay. Uh, what do you think the alternative way of thinking would be and who would that include? Well, I think an inclusive politics includes obviously everybody. Uh, in terms of the specific question you were mentioning about unemployment, uh, I think education still remains important, but uh, education alone is not going to save us here because we have a lot of really educated people. That's why I'm saying we need to rethink how we actually operate the labor markets uh, so that everybody can be included in that. We need widespread redistribution of money and power in this country and around the world. Otherwise, we're going to be in serious, serious trouble. Yeah. Hi, Trevor. You and I have had a few conversations. My name is Frank J. Toth. Hi, Frank, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I just want to commend you for your leadership in the parkland industry. It's one of the most progressive organizations in the country, doing a lot of good. Thank you. Thank you. All right, to get to my question, <clears throat> Ringling Brothers has just closed down their circus in the United States because they're getting too much competition in Washington from Trump. <laughs> Is that right? I think that I've heard that, actually, yes. <laughs> uh, a little closer to home, what's your impression? Put on your Parkland Institute hat, our immediate problem is with our own leadership, the honesty of our school teacher PM, his utterance of rejecting his number one protocol to get into office. Do you think that's going to hurt his future, future political life? Okay, thank you, Frank. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Yvonne Jones. 
My name is Yvonne Jones. I was interested in one of the slides that you had that said eight people own 50%, you said, or? Mm -hmm. Who are those eight people? I, I didn't bother to look up their actual names, but if you go to the Oxfam report, it's easy enough to identify eight people. The other source you can actually go to is, is amazingly informative, is uh, the, the Forbes uh, list of billionaires. 25 years ago, they only used to do the Forbes list of millionaires. They've quit because that's chump change. Now it's all billionaires, and the last count was about 1,500 billionaires around the world. But you can just peel off the top eight there, and you'll find them really quickly. So it's, it's available on websites. Hi, my name's Leona Jacobs. Uh, Trevor, I wonder if you could comment on the power behind the throne in the form of Steve Bannon and what that means and some of the changes that have been happening in the background with his involvement in places where typically they don't, chiefs of, of staff, chat, strategists don't sit. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to make a really really short answer to this and probably not terribly informative. I don't know a lot about him other than the fact that, of course, he was connected with this fairly notorious Breitbart news. Um, it is actually worrisome the where you start to have um, communications people who are uh, in, in charge of what should be actually really technical and uh, areas of expertise. And so I think that suggests, again, a government that is increasingly focused around selling what its policies as opposed to actually creating good policies. But again, we actually have had that experience here in Alberta, in Canada, in the United States. I mean, that's unfortunately one of the trends with a lot of uh, governments over the last number of years. This just kind of takes it to another level. My name is Mark Gettle. Uh, these executive orders are very scary, and you said that you don't quite know what limitations there could be. Mm -hmm. Now, could you foresee in a situation where things go really <coughs> crazy in the U.S. that there will be a middle military takeover, a military coup? Uh, if I let my imagination run wild, and I have a pretty good imagination, actually, uh, taken to the very far extreme, uh, yes, I could see that happening. I don't think it's going to happen. and uh, But, you know, at this point, at what point is all kind of all bets off, right? Uh, and the thing is, as you start to become more extreme, then you start to create your own pushback, which also looks extreme, which then sets up the stage for, well, there's chaos out in the streets, and the only thing that we can do is we need to bring in uh, military law, uh, and we need to start locking people up. So there's, there is kind of a scary end game to this, and you, you hope at some point that, you know, the United States loves to talk about their checks and balances, and you hope some of those things will actually kick in. But, uh, yeah, if, if you let your imagination go, you can imagine this going in a really, really bad direction and really quickly. Let's face it, we're 15 days into the, in the Trump administration, 15 days out of the first 100. Uh, what's going to happen the next 85? So, uh, We'll take these two questions, and that will probably use up our time. Graham? Uh, my, my name is Graham Greenlee. Uh, Trevor, you mentioned there needs to be a, a redistribution of wealth in the country. Well, how can that be accomplished? Well, uh, there's a number of things that you could do. Uh, and uh, th there's some things, uh, for example, uh, here in Alberta, the raising of the minimum wage of, uh, to $15, I think, is actually a positive move. There's been moves across the United States. It kind of creates a floor there. Um, but the other thing that, even more importantly in terms of uh, changing people's uh, wage rates is uh, 
allowing for uh, increased union involvement. Every country around the world, every state where you have uh, strong unions, you have a redistribution of wealth. You have actual uh, work money that goes into people's hands. Half of the states in the United States are right-to-work states. That means they're union-busting states, and those are all the most minimal wage places you'll find. Um, these are like really underdeveloped states. And uh, if the Trump administration follows through on what I think it might do, it, they'll probably pursue that. Uh, you also need to, frankly, go after finance capital. You need laws and regulations that don't allow people to make money for already having lots of money. Uh, and that's what brought about the crisis in 2007-8, uh, and so we need stronger controls on finance capital. We need stronger controls on finance capital moving across the world at the push of a button and escaping taxation. So there are a number of things you can actually do to uh, re, uh, reconnect the wealth that's produces, produced with the local communities and their national uh, governments. Uh, Art Sanford's the name, uh, Trevor, and um, Hi, th thank you for your comments. Um, uh, as I watch, you know, Trump, 63 million people yep. voted for Trump. There had to be a reason. Mm -hmm. And as I watch governments trying <coughs> to engineer the thinking of society, I wonder how much of that is a backlash that brought Trump to power. And just one second quick comment on trade. Mm -hmm. Trade between Canada and, East, uh, and the U.S., we sell them about 3% more than they sell us. Mm -hmm. It is said in the paper that 9 million Americans depend on selling to Canada. And in Canada, about 3 million depend on selling to the states. So who's got a trade problem? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's why the uh, – thanks thanks for your question. I think that's one of the reasons that the uh, federal government is ho holding their cards close to their chest because they think that we are not going to be in the sights of the United States. Um, it is true there is a lot of people clearly voted for uh, Donald Trump as in historically voted for all kinds of extreme parties. Um, but why they voted is, is there's a lot of different reasons out there. Right, and some of those people I suspect are outright racist. Some of those people are just misogynistic. A lot of people are just frankly scared people. They're scared and they're angry. A lot of them are scared and they're angry because they're worried about their future, they're worried about their jobs. And I said most people are not ideological. They want an answer. They want a solution that, some, that will work for them. And I think the failure of the mainstream parties the failure of progressive parties over the years has been not to address those genuine concerns. I take seriously the concerns of a lot of the people who voted for Donald Trump, and people should, rather than just simply say, well, they're a bunch of racists. Some are, for sure. But a lot of people have legitimate concerns, and unless they're listened to, they will continue to latch themselves on to people like Donald Trump, who frankly has no answers except some very scary ones. Thank you.